Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So I was in Geneva recently, and apart from visiting the UN building and having a good look at the amazing ceiling in the room where the Human Rights Council meets, I had the chance to hang out there with some journalists like us who are covering trials and courts uh, for justiceinfo.net. And via them, I realised that we're in the middle of a wave of Gambian trials. Yes, I had noticed that there was a member of the Gambian death squad that was found guilty in Germany just recently. And next month in Switzerland, the former interior minister, Usman Sonko, is due to go on trial. Plus also next year, another alleged former death squad member is due to be tried for torture in the United States. So I got curious about the connections between these different trials and also, of course, the fact that there's no court in the Gambia itself dealing with these alleged crimes. But before we do, we're going to back up a bit to get us all on the same page. Gambia is a West African country. It was ruled from 1994 to 2016 by Yaya Jame. It was a dictatorship known for heinous human rights violations. I remember when I was covering the Gambia from Senegal, we had a correspondent there that sometimes would call me and he had to flee into the woods because Jame was searching for somebody and he worked for an opposition paper. So... I hadn't really clocked the Gambia as such a brutal regime until I actually saw it in action. But after Jame was elected out of office, the Truth Commission did an extraordinary job of providing Gambians with an insight to all the crimes that death squads and others had committed under Jame's rule. And of course, the Truth Commission isn't then able to actually go ahead and prosecute. So the pressure has been on since the report came in, I think that was 2021, to get the resources and the political will to support a prosecutor's office and a special court. And if that happens, and we are told that a special prosecutor's office is due to be set up during the first quarter of next year, we'll do an episode specifically on that. But meanwhile, there have been these universal jurisdiction trials around the world, which have been providing Gambians with some form of justice. So just sticking with universal jurisdiction, I'm going to kick off with the by low verdict in Germany that came in just on the day that I was chatting to German-Egyptian journalist Hannah Al-Hitami. Hannah's been covering the Syrian trials that most of our listeners will know about, like the one in Koblenz. But the by low case, uh, that was about a driver for this group who are known as the junglers, kind of paramilitary division of the presidential guard under the Yahya Jame dictatorship, basically a death squad. So I asked Hannah whether the guilty verdict against Bailo came as a surprise to her. I was not surprised at all by the verdict. I've covered around three or four universal jurisdiction trials in Germany. And until now, my impression has been that the court usually follows the prosecution in a lot of the arguments that they use. I could have really been surprised today, but yeah, it, it didn't. It wasn't a surprise. It was ex- exactly what, what I expected. So these trials, like the Syria one in Koblenz, which apparently is a delightful town, um, but they're done in places where not so many people have ever heard of. It all seems to be happening in out-of-the-way backwater German towns, not major cities. And we asked Hannah what she thought of the court where Bailo was tried. So it's a court in a town called Celle, which funny enough translates to cell, um, although it's a different spelling. Anyway, it's a quite small, unknown um, city near Hanover. And 
it's quite pretty i would say actually i had never really heard of it that much but i could imagine going there for like a short vacation now that i've been there like it's not a big city it's quite you know small and um, quiet and the court itself also doesn't really have any i don't want to say glamour but it's 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 a very small court and it's quite funny actually because the courtroom is so gray and quite small there, there's like a lot of gray carpets and what i thought was kind of funny was that whenever you're in there you find like these tiny little flies there's i think they have some kind of fly problem because you also have like these tiny little flies you know they look like fruit flies but i don't know what they are flying around and it's just yeah it's very stuffy and hardly has any windows so yeah i feel like it wasn't the, the nicest court that i've been to so just to say before we go on, I just found it really refreshing to discuss these kind of trials and how you cover them with fellow journalists, you know, somebody like you, Steph, who is just as curious as we are and notice all these really strange things about these trials. A lot of what we know, obviously, is from the people who are doing the advocacy work and the lawyers, and then also partly through our personal observation or by reading the academic material around it. But a lot of it is really just by being there and by monitoring and reporting on the twists and the uncertainties that we see. So the really curious part of that Bilo trial for Hannah particularly, is that the evidence on which he was pursued and investigated was him being a kind of whistleblower. He gave an interview 10 years ago describing the terrible things that he'd witnessed as a driver for the death squad known as the Junglers. And that really set Hannah thinking. For me, the most interesting part of this trial, I think, was how it started, how this guy even was discovered by the authorities. So he used to be a driver for a death squad in the Gambia. And then at some point he left and uh, he became something of a whistleblower, I would say. Um, you could call it that maybe, because he decided to make all the crimes public, all the crimes that he had witnessed. And he talked to an oppositional radio journalist in the States and just over an hours long interview um, gave all the details about certain murders that happened and that it was the president who was behind them. So that apparently, um, from what we heard in court, made a big difference for Gambians. And for the first time, they knew what was really happening in the country. That was in 2013. And three years later, um, President Jame was actually voted out of office. And then years later, this guy now living in Germany, like the interview is rediscovered, I would say, by the authorities in Switzerland and in Germany as well. And they realize, oh, um, sounds like this guy's incriminating himself because he was actually there. And then they start the investigation against him. So I think that's something that for me is it's, it's a big dilemma because, first of all, you need people to be whistleblowers. You need people who defect from their positions to kind of share their insider uh, knowledge. They were in the trials in Syria that I covered. They were insider witnesses, uh, former uh, Secret Service and Army staff and I was always wondering like where's the line when will they cross the line between being witnesses and being suspects or even uh, being accused and it was also the same in the Syria cases also the two guys who were accused of crimes against humanity in Syria um, in 2020 
In Germany, they also had both cooperated with German authorities in, in investigations. They had been witnesses and they had slowly turned into suspects and then accused and then convicted. So this is something that I, I found already very striking in the Syria cases. And I think it's, it causes a lot of problems for future trials. And then I saw the same thing happening in the Scambia trial. Um, and uh, it seems to be something that, that might be very specific to universal jurisdiction trials Because these are the people who leave the, who have left the country and who have left their positions and who have talked about what happened. So these are the people who might be on the radar most of uh, of the authorities in those countries where they now live. So I think that she's making a really great point there about this issue of what you do with inside a witness testimony and how you get it and how you treat it, essentially. I was asking the same kind of questions recently in relation to the International Criminal Court, because recently their case against a Central African Republic politician, Maxime Mokom, collapsed. And the concern that I was reporting on was that the insider witnesses who could potentially have testified against him weren't really prepared to come. And really, the question that's I was asking was, well, what's in it for them if they do come to the ICC? Are they being offered some kind of a deal? And they're not necessarily. So I started to wonder whether those kind of issues come up with uh, universal jurisdiction trials the same as Hannah. And that's just one of the issues that we were chatting through. Yeah, another thing that we were wondering about is what about Bailo's defense? What was his defense? And Hannah had written about the struggles of the defense lawyers in all these cases uh, we described. Yeah, it's something that I think is also the more cases you watch um, and the longer you watch specific cases, the more obvious it becomes that the trials, I think, as someone watching the trials, I mean, I'm not a legal expert, but I think they're a bit easier on the prosecution than on the defense because the prosecution, it's uh, like the federal prosecutors, so... They have a lot of resources. And in the cases that we've seen, there's always the civil parties that are represented by NGOs. The NGOs have another type of funding, of course, and they have a lot of contacts on the ground in the countries or in the communities. That's not something that the defense doesn't have. Sometimes I was thinking that there should almost be an NGO that that supports specifically defendants in international trials. Although, of course, my sympathy is always on the side of the victims. But at the same time, I'm wondering if it's really fair, like if really both sides have the same tools and the same resources to work with. And yeah, and that defense lawyer in the Bailo case and the Gambia case, he told me this kind of trial is hell for, for a defense lawyer. And he it was clear that, yeah, they didn't have a lot of evidence and they didn't have a lot of witnesses that could actually make a difference. But even the ones that they wanted to get, that they could have gotten... Sometimes it was difficult. They summoned witnesses, and when they showed up, they actually said something completely <laughs> different than what they had obviously wanted them for. Some didn't show up at all. Two who came because the defense summoned them then applied for asylum, so that also makes you wonder. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm not saying like that, that could also be like a coincidence that they want both. They want to testify, and they also want to apply for asylum, but it also makes you wonder maybe that was their original motive and they never had anything to contribute in the first place. So I think it's just, yeah, it seems like a very difficult position to be in. So what she's explaining there sounds all quite familiar, the struggle from defense lawyers to get witnesses, 
to go and investigate the crimes where they were committed with the relatively less resources that they get for the investigation than the, than the prosecution. Because in Germany, as in the Netherlands, it's always up to the prosecution to mount the entire case and the defense just has to shoot holes in it. And so they give a lot less money to the defense for doing their own discovery because they're mostly just meant to react to the prosecution case and not really do their own thing. So let's turn also to the uh, Usman Sanko trial opening. That's going to be starting on the 8th of January uh, next month, uh, 2024, in Switzerland. The investigation there regarding crimes against humanity that were committed in Gambia started actually way back in 2017. So I asked Benoit Mistre from Trial International, one of the NGOs that's been behind this, to help us by outlining some of the key issues. Let's say there are many, many interesting legal issues, but when we look at the specific Sonko trial, two main things come, come to mind. The first thing is that we hope that the trial will be able to explain how basically all the different security services were uh, interrelated and collaborating in the, in the systematic generalized persecution of the Gambian population. You might know that uh, Usman Sonko was, at the end of his career, uh, Minister of Interior, uh, so a very high-level position. This position, he was basically supervising the, the police uh, intervention unit in the Gambia, as well as the prison systems. Um, but we believe, and I think the, the investigation shows that uh, his services were really much uh, interconnected with other ones, such as uh, NIA, for example. And we hope that the trial will be able to highlight this broader systematic collaboration, systemic collaboration, when it was a question of persecuting the, the Gambian population. So that's for one. And maybe another one uh, that is interesting is indeed this high-level position that Usman Sonko had. He's being accused of some crimes that he might not have participated in directly. But he was in a position to prevent torture to happen or even to stop uh, acts of torture. The prosecutors believe that he could have done so, but he didn't. So he, he should have a criminal uh, liability in, in the acts that were basically committed by uh, persons under his supervision. Uh, the NIA that Benoit mentions there is the National Intelligence Agency, which Usman Sonko, as the Minister of Interior, was responsible for. And all these security services, as Benoit says, have questions to be answered about how they operated, how they cooperated. I mean, who was taking orders from whom? I was speaking to a Gambian activist about this who was telling me that this is still actually a major concern in the Gambia now, the need to reform the security sector and the lack of accountability for their actions. Maybe this trial will start to provide some of the answers. But then again, I also wondered, having had the buy low case and the results of that and the information that, that provided, I wondered how the Sonko case is going to interconnect with that and any other trials. Are these different jurisdictions actually talking to each other? Let's say from the outside, it should make absolute sense that these three different authorities from different legal systems should cooperate and exchange information. I think they did that in the Swiss case when it was questioned to uh, to get information from the German proceedings. It's absolutely important that they exchange information. And when you have the very recent Bilo uh, trials verdict that took place last week, basically, 
the German authorities are sending a clear signal that crimes against humanity were committed in the Gambia. That's how they judged uh, by law responsible. So this has clearly to be taken in account by the Swiss judges when they will be looking at Osman Sonko's responsibility. I mean, that's, that was the same context. Basically, the Swiss have a lot to learn from the German trial indeed. And the third trial we should talk about potentially coming up in the U.S. is that of Michael Song Korea, who was allegedly a member of the Junglers, which, again, is that paramilitary division of the Presidential Guard under Yahya Jammeh's dictatorship, who we've already heard about from the Bai Lo case in Germany. The death squad was active from around the early 2000s until the end of his regime. Uh, that's uh, Ella Matthews, senior lawyer from the Center for Justice and Accountability, CJA. Correa, as a member of this death squad, allegedly carried out torture and other crimes. But in the US, he's indicted for the torture of six individuals who were detained following an attempted coup um, in the Gambia in 2006. Um, he's alleged to have either tortured these people himself or been present while other junglers tortured them. He's being tried in the U.S. because that's where he was arrested in 2019 by the Department of Homeland Security for such an innocuous thing as overstaying his visa. But the CGA, along with a coalition of Gambian organizations, including the Anaked Victim Center and a number of international organizations like Trial International, called on the U.S. to investigate him further. The case also caught the attention of two U.S. senators, Senator Lee Hay and Senator Durbin. And in June of 2020, the Department of Justice actually indicted Korea for six counts of torture and one count of conspiracy under the U.S. Torture Act. One thing that I was curious in relation to the U.S. about was basically there aren't that many cases in the U.S. Uh, under universal jurisdiction there are really narrow conditions under which somebody can be brought to trial. So a couple of the cases that I can remember having watched were Liberians, uh, Mohamed Japate and Thomas Weiwiu. They were essentially to do with visa frauds, even though a lot more of the evidence was also about their backgrounds and their connections to atrocity crimes. And this Torture Act itself that is going to be used for Korea has only been used three times. I remember the very first one. I mean, it was years ago, uh, Chucky Taylor, the Liberian president, Charles Taylor's son. And then in between, there's been somebody else, Ross Roggio, for crimes in Iraq. So I asked uh, Ella to tell us more about how limited this uh, Torture Act has been. So you're right. Correa is actually only the third person who hopefully will be tried under the Torture Act, which was enacted in 1994. So we're averaging about a trial a decade. Chucky Taylor was the first um, to be tried under the Torture Act. And then since then, actually this year, Ross Roggio was convicted for torture that was carried out in, in Iraq. So it's it's a huge step forward. And we're seeing two cases tried within the last couple of years um, is huge. And I, I think that means things are changing. We've also seen some legal changes in the US that I think also signaled that the US is becoming more open to the idea of charging international crimes. Historically, we've often seen you know, war criminals, human rights violators charged with immigration fraud rather than substantive human rights violations. I'm thinking of Mohammed Jabate and Thomas Wawayu and 
Whereas now I think hopefully what we're seeing is more of an inclination to charging the actual substantive human rights violations themselves. But recently, the War Crimes Act has been broadened so that uh, war crimes like the Torture Act, they can now also charge non-U.S. nationals uh, for non-U.S. victims. Yes, that's right. So this year, the War Crimes Act was amended to broaden the jurisdictional reach of it. So the Torture Act is quite unusual. The three, we're talking about three cases and three trials those are the only three substantive human rights trials um, in the US. And one of the reasons is because the Torture Act had a broader jurisdictional reach. You could charge an individual regardless of the nationality of the victim or the perpetrator, so long as they were present in the US. The War Crimes Act, until quite recently, required actually that either the victim or the perpetrator was a US citizen or US person. Now it has that same, what we call present in jurisdiction. So all that's required is that the perpetrator is present in the US. And that's significant. It's a significant legal change. And I think that shows that kind of the political landscape towards international crimes is changing somewhat in the US. And hopefully that political landscape will translate into action by the Department of Justice as well and more charging. Well, I suppose that probably means more work for all of us in terms of being able to have more stuff to cover. We'll have to see how the US is going to use this broadened jurisdiction because we had news uh, just a few days ago that the US had issued indictments against four Russian soldiers for war crimes committed against an American national in Ukraine. But that seems to be based on the old legislation from the 1990s because they had an American victim. So this had been long possible. Um, and so we're not really seeing any new cases yet based on this broader jurisdiction. But maybe, you know, this was just one thing that they were they were clearing up the backlog. Well, let's see. Uh, let's uh, go back to the Gambia again. I also caught up with fellow journalist Mariam Sankanu. Uh, she also works for Justice Unfo. She was following quite closely where all of the details have come from that's provided the information for these trials. They originated out of the kind of testimony that was heard by the TRRC, Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission, testimony from victims and really some extraordinary details that flooded out. So for us, it was extraordinary and seeing these high-profile perpetrators coming and giving their testimonies at the commission. So, and all the revelations were, I mean, I wouldn't say we didn't, no, we didn't expect some of it to come from Gambians because the crimes were committed by Gambians. And so it was, it was shocking to know that Gambians were actually the ones who were putting fellow Gambians through, through a lot of these things. But since that TRRC completed and then released their report around the end of 2021, Then the government also released their white paper on the TRC recommendations. Mariam says that there was really a lot of hope, but apparently not so much now. In fact, amongst the victims' organisations and victims themselves, quite a lot of frustration. She talked to me about the lack of, well, the apparent lack, let's say, of political will to actually get on and do something and the sense that the government to some degree is really just ticking the boxes to uh, earn brownie points from foreign donors. The saddest thing for me is that these victims had to leave for like two decades without justice and now that they actually told their stories publicly and these wounds have been opened, they now have to leave through 
the pain of knowing that maybe the government doesn't care. What does she think about these universal jurisdiction cases? Have you asked her she sees those as useful? Yes, here's Maria. I mean, I wouldn't try to underplay the significance of what is happening because, I mean, obviously, if Gambians are not doing the trials and then it's being done elsewhere, that's definitely a win. Because our government, we do not know when, even though they're talking about a hybrid court and saying that the prosecutor's office would be set up very soon. We still see it as a way of ticking a box. But then regardless of the fact that something is happening outside, the only part about it that also saddens us is how much of it is really about us. What does that mean? How much is really about us? Including us in the process. I mean, for the Sanko, for example, I was even talking to the defense lawyer and he had told me that, well, the, the victims who are affected are just going to come and testify before the court and they have to go back. So you, you try to see how much of this is about, it should be about you, but you cannot attend it. Also, funds are an issue and also maybe the, the court wouldn't be able to provide all of these things for you. So you have to just sit back home and others have to go through the whole process and you just have to be receiving information. So maybe if, if there was a way that we were more involved in it, and one of that could be through journalists, information is power. Also, including the putting the victims more a part of this process instead of just taking their testimony so that it could just be part of the evidence. So I think the human aspect of it is what's missing. We know the law has to do what it has to do, but humanity is always relevant everywhere. So for us, that's the human aspect of it is what we feel like it's not there. And that is why when you go back home in Gambia, I think we were lost the whole bylaw trial during the first week, a uh, few weeks. It was huge. But then later it, it became a bit bit silent because we were not really a very, very part of it. Language was an issue. Gambian journalists were not there. So we just have to rely on other people. And then not every single person would, would really be able to follow because if Gambian journalists were part of it, then maybe there, there could be interpretations in the local languages and it could be passed on to the radio stations. And then the whole community is part of it. But then we do not have any of that. So that's what I mean, that it's supposed to be about us, but we do not feel that sense of being a part of the whole process. So maybe that's a bit of a depressing end to this. While I was in Geneva, I did hear, though, that there were efforts in place to try and get some Gambian observers there to actually cover Sonko and therefore provide the information back to communities in the Gambia. The defence lawyer said during a public debate that we held there that he supported this idea of proper translation being available. So maybe these trials can be a bit more central, a bit more meaningful than just feeling like half measures. Yeah, it seems so odd to me that when they have these international trials that they don't do proper translation or live feeds for victims. It feels that we had the same discussion about the Syria trials in Germany. We recently had a Syria trial here in the Netherlands and there they did have Arab translation in the courtroom and a, a live feed for people to follow. So uh, maybe the Dutch justice is a little bit more ahead, but it's also very incidental. I think all those uh, universal jurisdiction countries don't have a kind of general setup for outreach in this case. And some are better than others, but there really should be a more overarching idea of how, how you do that, because that can only benefit the trials, I think. 
And then there's also the politics on the ground in the Gambia. Just speaking to that Gambian activist to get a feel from there, she pointed out to me how at least one activist and separately a journalist have faced arrest for their criticism of the authorities over the continued mixed messages that the authorities have on accountability. And she was very concerned about this all gives Gambians a sense that really politics hasn't changed enough. The structures that enabled the dictatorship to exist before are still there. The tendency to censor critics, which was one of the key elements marking the beginnings of dictatorship, were also there again. So I'm really curious to see, having had all these really different briefings from people, what happens during 2024 for accountability in Gambia? So let's plan, shall we, to do another podcast if or when the special prosecutor's office actually gets up and uh, we can start to ask uh, some more questions about what does it really mean for, for the victims? Absolutely. We want to know how this case continues. And also, just off the top of my head, there are so many Gambians involved with international justice who have all this experience of being court registrars and prosecutors and all that. You would think that Gambia would have no trouble setting this up in a heartbeat. It's it's odd that this is the the one that's lagging behind in a way. So, so definitely a country to keep an eye on in the coming years. Will do. So speak to you... Um after Christmas, I think we've got a special edition over Christmas and then uh, we'll meet up again in January. Yeah, we have our Christmas special to keep everybody uh, entertained and then uh, back on the airwaves with new content from January. So thank you very much for listening to us this year and have a good end of the year. Yeah, exactly that. Same sentiments. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. Music